We should be very careful about artificial intelligence. We are summoning the demon. Welcome back to Babylon Singularity. I am your host, Peter Herter. This is a part two of Joshua chapter 7 and Joshua chapter 8. The title of the episode is Between Bethel and AI. It was just one of the phrases that kind of caught my attention as I read through these two chapters. But before I get into that, I want to ask God's blessing on this podcast. God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we ask you to have your way through us, through your word. We ask you, God, to speak to us, change our hearts, change our minds. We ask you to help us to see things from your perspective, help us to bow low before you, to worship and adore all that you are in your glorious mysterious grandeur, God, so far beyond our thoughts, our ways of thinking, God. You are far beyond, God, and we just exalt you above your uh, above this episode and above our lives. We exalt you above all, that the name of Jesus would be lifted during this episode, that your name would be honored, that your spirit would be welcomed that your word would be embraced and considered and would bear fruit God, in the hearts of your saints. God, I ask for your word to change us, to bear much fruit for your glory, God, not our glory, but for yours. We give you this time. We ask you, God, to open up your word to us, open up our hearts to you, open up my lips to speak what is in your heart, Jesus. Just ask you now that your spirit would fill me, the blood of Jesus would cleanse me, that I would shelve all of my personal agendas and just bow before your word, God, because your word is glorious. In the name of Jesus, amen. So last episode, we got into Joshua chapter 7, and Joshua is a very interesting book. The more I think about this book, the more I'm amazed at how badly I've missed its importance in the Bible. Joshua, for me, has always been the book that follows Moses, right? It's the book that, you like, well, all the cool stuff happens with Moses, and then, you know, Joshua kind of comes along, and they kind of finish the deal. But Joshua is much more than that. And my underestimation of the book has, has caught me a little bit by surprise, when I think about one simple fact, and it's the name of the Son of God, right? Um, you see, Jesus didn't get his name because Mary and Joseph were looking for good 
Bible names, and they had a, ba- a baby book with names in it. They didn't have those back then. They didn't actually care. <laughs> they didn't think anything like the way we think now. They had other things on their mind. But more importantly, Mary and Joseph didn't name Jesus at all. They were told the name of their son. When the angel visited uh, Mary, the instructions were very clear that you will name him Jesus. For you will save his people from their sins. So the name that Jesus receives isn't from humans or from human society. Far from it, it is received from a divine command from an angel in a dream in the night. I believe that was uh, an encounter. Or not, I don't know if it was a dream or she just woke up. It was an, an, it was an encounter with an angel. It was divinely inspired. And the name that was given from heaven was the name, the, the, the name that we use in the Greek name form of the name is Jesus. Of course, the Hebrew version of the name Jesus is Yeshua. And the name Yeshua is the Hebrew name that we use for Joshua. So Jesus was named Joshua in English, right? His name in Hebrew is Yeshua. It's Joshua. It's the same name. You might think that would be significant, right? It's not like God came to name his son haphazardly that he rolled the dice and decided, hey, it could have been Joseph, you know, it could have been David, it could have been, you know, list off a a number of names, Abraham, and the dice just rolled to uh, Joshua, so we're going to go with Joshua. No, when God names his son in the earth, Joshua, he is highlighting Joshua. He's saying, look at my son in reference to Joshua. There are many types and many forerunners and many figures in the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus But the one that God highlights and says, this is the one I want you to pay attention to is Joshua. He says, I'm going to name my son Joshua. What would the Hebrew mind immediately think of when that name came up? They would think of Joshua. That's not necessarily the name we think of because we're used to the Greek name Jesus. And we're not, we're not, we're not um, accustomed to making that connection, but that connection is as plain as day. And I've ignored it, apparently. I've, my, somehow my mind has been shut off from this reality. But now, all of a sudden, I'm awakening to the importance of the book of Joshua. And there's a lot of cool things. Just preliminarily thinking about it, 
some of the things that are striking about the book of Joshua is just the overall motif of Joshua, right? Joshua comes in, Moses dies. Joshua leads the next generation into the promise. He is the one and only. Him and Caleb are the one and the two and only, (laughs) however that works, that survived the generation that God said, I'm not, I'm not going to let these guys see the promised land. They saw my miracles. They doubted me. They broke faith with me. They're going to die in the desert. I'm going to take their children and they're going to enter in. And it is only Joshua and Caleb who make that cut. The, the, the uniqueness of Joshua to live in wholehearted obedience to God, where God would say, no, you're, you're, you're my chosen one. You're the one who survived that entire generation that died in the wilderness, Joshua. You're the one and only. And Caleb. <laughs> so they go in, they take the promised land. And this is, not, this is not like God coming in and releasing wild beasts on people and letting them, you know, um, be consumed by this. No, the Israelites have to do it. So Joshua is going to lead them, command them into driving the inhabitants of the land out so that the people of God can inherit the land. So if you just think... And then it's all about Joshua's success in doing just that. He was a successful commander and leader of leading the people actually into the promised land originally and driving the inhabitants out. Without Joshua's ministry, there is no taking of the land. Joshua took the land. Joshua fulfilled the promises that God said, hey, Abraham, hey, Isaac, hey, Jacob, hey, Moses, I'm making a promise. I'm going to make your descendants like the stars of the sky. I will give you a land flowing with milk and honey. It is Joshua who executes the promise. It is Joshua who makes the promise a reality. We have a very similar motif going on in the book of Revelation, where you have Jesus at the command of heaven and earth, the only one worthy to open the scrolls and read what they contain. And it is he who opens the scrolls. He is the only one worthy, just as Joshua is the only one who could escape from the generation that would fall in the wilderness. Jesus alone, the greater Joshua, stands at the helm of all human history and open scrolls that only he can open and declares his plan to execute the promise of God to bring heaven to earth and make them one.
And so you see these two motifs playing out in Joshua and Revelation. And then you have interesting sneak peeks, like the, the story of the Jericho, of this walled city, this anti-God civilization that's got to go, right? God's like, these guys got to go, and this is how I'm going to make them go. You're going to march around the city seven times. Each day, you're going to blow your trumpet, seven trumpets, blow the tr- seven trumpets seven times, and then when the trumpets blow the seventh time, the walls of Jericho will fall down. The anti-God civilization will crumble when you guys blow your trumpets seven times. Fast forward into the book of Revelation. God sets up angels with seven trumpets that are going to blow, and each blast of the trumpet releases new realities in the end times. And when the seventh trumpet blows, when that final trumpet blasts, the anti-God civilization crumbles before the coming of the king. Yeshua, Joshua. So you can see I've been giving some thought about this uh, Joshua revelation um, reality that I've never really seen before. So I'm, I'm very excited about it, very fascinated by it. And uh, last episode, we uh, walked through chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7 was about the sin of Achan. It was when Israel broke faith with the Lord in regard to devoted things. And last episode, we talked about the devoted things are the things not that are devoted to demons, but that God has devoted to destruction. So anything that God points at and says, hey, that thing is destined for the fire is a thing that is, is a devoted thing. It is devoted to the fire. God has said that thing is going to be destroyed. So we see Achan, after the battle of Jericho's one, looks around. Nobody's looking. He sees uh, a nice uh, Babylonian uh, cloak or something. A few other things, some silver, bar of gold. Brings those things that God said, hey, do not take their possessions. Don't take their money. I want you to take everything, all of their possessions, and I want you to burn them. So all of those things are devoted things. Well, Achan sees a devoted thing and says, well, come on, guys. We know this God thing isn't this real, right? I mean, I can probably get away with this, right? You never know. Maybe Achan was freaked out. Maybe he took the things and he knew he wasn't supposed to. There's no question about it. He brings them into his tent and, you know, you know, maybe he's expecting, you know, God to, you know, destroy him first night. Nothing happens. Second night, nothing happens. But eventually the Israelites decide that it's time to take the next city. And the next city is Ai. Ai is a small city. And when the guys go spy it out, they come back and say, hey, don't. Oh, wait a second. Right, okay, I'm, I'm sorry, I just want to make sure I knew where I was here. They say, don't send everybody, right? They, they underestimate AI. They look at the city, they say, 
this it's not worth the the big military campaign. I mean, come on, guys. It's such a pain getting everybody organized. We've got 30,000 people here. I mean, to get a full-fledged military campaign on this little city is just not worth our time. Let's just send our best guys up there. They'll take them out real quick, and uh, we'll move on to the next city. So that was the plan. They, they underestimate AI. The people of God underestimate AI. So they send their best guys up there. I think it was like 3,000 of the men went up there. And they get routed. It says in uh, chapter 7, um, verse 4, about 3,000 men went up there from the people. And they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate um, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So they underestimate AI. AI comes out and overcomes the saints, right? These are the saints. These are the people of God under the direction of Joshua. The, the saints or the people of God un, initially underestimate AI, then later are overcome by AI. And they come back to the camp and they say, what is the deal? Why didn't we just stay out oh, past Jordan, never even come into this land if we're just going to come in here and these guys are going to be able to kill us at will? Joshua hits the deck, you know, asking God, what, what's going on here? Your name is at stake. It looks like we're going to get wiped out. How can this be? God says, stand up. This isn't the plan. There's something that you don't know and I'm about to tell you about. You guys have effectively identified yourselves with devoted things. Of course, this comes as a shock to Joshua because he didn't know. He told everybody, don't touch anything. Everything goes in the fire that God says go in the fire. Joshua did his job. Then there's Achan who's sneaking around going, hey, look at that uh, Babylonian cloak over there. Nobody's really going to notice if I take it and put it in my tent. Well, God says, now you have taken the thing and devote the, a, devoted, a thing that I've devoted to destruction, and you've brought it into your tent. That means you have now identified yourself as a thing devoted for destruction. And so I now must deal with you the way you were supposed to be dealing with that devoted thing, which was to destroy it. So God says, now, I, now I'm going to destroy you because you've identified yourself with a devoted thing. Joshua does the right thing. He comes out and says, all right, let's find out who this is. He comes out, finds the guy. It's Aiken. Aiken knows his goose is cooked. He is sorry that he did it, but this is not the time or the place for that kind of failure. And so God is making a statement about his holiness and about his plan for eternity that he does not compromise with sin. He does not compromise when it comes to holiness. He does not compromise. He will pay any price for holiness, but he will not compromise with it. He is holy, and that's the only way he can be. And so Achan is killed along with all of his stuff and his family wiped out under God's command. 
That's not because Joshua is a mean guy. Joshua wanted to do what God told him to do, and he did it. And so if you want to lay this at anyone's feet, God says, lay it at mine, because I am the one who commanded it. And guess what? I'm also the one who made everything and everyone. And I know all about Achan and his family, and I, I know about his eternity. And so I know all things beyond, far beyond what your limited mind thinks. And there will be no one who can lay a charge against God. His wisdom, his counsel, his kindness, his gentleness, his justice, his holiness stands forever. And our human, frail, pathetic, evil understandings just melt under the glory of who he is. So the people get rid of Achan, and God says, all right, now we can do business. So that leads us to Joshua chapter 8, which is the one that I wanted to get into, right? So thus far, we've seen how the sin of the, the people, the saints, had put them in a position before God where God had to treat them as if he was treating the devoted things, which means I will... Not only resist you, I will destroy you in my holy fire. I will destroy you. Achan is an example of what happens to those who will not accept my invitation to holiness. It seems harsh. It seems rough that God would take such extreme measures but that's exactly what he did and who he was is who he is. There is no difference between the, the God of Joshua chapter 7 and the God who reigns in heaven today. Nobody switched thrones with anybody else. Wasn't like one God was up there for a while and then that God changed his mind and decided to let somebody else on the throne. Nope. Same God all the way through. So when the Israelites repent, when the devoted things are destroyed, then God says, okay. Now I'm going to demonstrate my glory against AI. He says, verse 1, The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to AI. See, I have given into your hand the king of AI and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as a plunder for yourselves. Lay ambush against the city. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 
three thousand mighty men of valor, and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city. Behind it, do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. They will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you've taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out. So Joshua lays a battle plan against AI. He says, listen, guys, here's, here's the plan. I want you guys, uh, this certain section of the military here to go and hide behind the city. And then the rest of us are going to go come up to the city as if we're going to attack it. And then we're going to retreat or flee before them. And when they see us fleeing, they're going to think it's just like it was the last time. And they're going to come out to destroy us. But when you see them come out, I'm going to give the signal. And you guys are going to spring the trap. Verse 10, Joshua rose Early in the next morning, mustered the people, went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people, to Ai, and all the fighting men who were with him, went up. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai. So they stationed the forces. The main encampment was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city, but Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness so that all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. The men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. They hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. With the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. 
When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness, where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand from which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Verse 28, so Joshua burned Ai and made it a forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on the tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took down his body from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate and raised over it a heap of stones, which stands there to this day. So the story goes... The initial campaign against AI is a failure. The saints are overcome. Initially, the saints underestimate AI. They say, we don't need the whole troop. We'll just send a few guys up there. They'll take it. The saints are overcome. So the first step is the saints underestimate AI. Then the saints are overcome by AI. But the reason they're overcome by AI isn't because AI is superior the reason they are overcome by AI is because they are not holy and God deals with them in holiness and causes his people to be purified. And once they are purified from the devoted things, then God says, okay, here is my battle plan for AI. I want you guys to go and lay an ambush and make it look just like it did the last time. And when the king of AI sees you fleeing, he's going to think, hey, this is just like the last time we killed these guys. Let's go and finish them off. And every last man was drawn out into battle. Every single one left the city to pursue Joshua in hopes that they would eliminate the people of God forever. But it is that at that point that Joshua has a javelin in his hand and God says, now point your javelin towards Ai. And as Joshua points his javelin towards Ai the people who are hiding in ambush behind the city are released and burn the city. And as the city is burning, the people who were once pursuing Joshua are now looking back at their city burning, and they realize this is not like the last time they overcame Israel. This is a very different scenario. This time now they are flanked on both sides, with Israel pinching in on both sides, and it says that not a man escaped alive. Every single one was devoted to destruction. Verse 28 says, Joshua burned Ai and made it forever 
a heap of ruins as it is to this day. It says that the king of Ai was brought before Joshua and Joshua hung him, threw him at the gates of his city, raised over it a great heap of stones. It's an astounding story, a story that I have never connected to the book of Revelation until just recently. And now that I see it in light of Revelation, especially Revelation 19, I'm seeing Joshua 7 and 8 in a whole new light. And here's what I mean. Go ahead and... Fast forward into the book of Revelation here. I'm going to spend just a brief amount of time in Revelation 13 and then fast forward into Revelation 19. It says that there's a beast. John sees a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. It says that to this beast, uh, in verse 2, a the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. And it says that the inhabitants of the earth, the whole earth marveled in verse 3. Uh, they follow the beast. They worship the dragon in verse 4, for he had given authority to the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And it says... In verse 7, it is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them or to overcome them. So here's the scenario. You have this beast that has power to temporarily overcome the saints. This isn't a this isn't an eternal reality. This is a brief reality. This is the this is part of the devil knows that his time is short reality. This is a, a brief period of time where the beast is allowed to overcome the saints. Just as AI was allowed to overcome the Israelites. Not because AI is superior to the saints, but because the saints must become holy and ready to meet their king at their wedding day. There's a preparation that needs to happen in the saints. Just as there was a sanctification that needed to happen in the people of Israel. So then we move forward to Revelation 19, when Jesus ar arrives on a white horse. It says, the one sitting on it, I'm, I'm looking at Revelation chapter uh, 19, verse 11. The one sitting on the white horse is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His, on his head there are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. 
It says, verse 14, The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Verse 17 says, I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called out to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were slain with the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The campaign against AI in Joshua 8 is a precursor to the campaign of Jesus upon the white horse to bring judgment upon the Antichrist and his followers. In both cases, there is a magnificent battle plan drawn to gather the kings of the earth to come and meet Joshua in a field of battle. In both cases, people are drawn out and ambushed. They think they're going to win. The king of AI and the beast and false prophet all believe that they are going to win. They think, hey, we overcame the saints the last time. We'll just do the same thing again. Problem is, this time, Joshua is on his white horse. Yeshua has come to judge the earth. The Antichrist, the beast, realized this is not going to be like the last time they overcame the saints. In fact, they find themselves in an ambush in which they cannot escape. And that just like the inhabitants of AI, all the men who have joined with the beast and the false prophet are slain in a field. And in both cases, burning the city, burning its inhabitants, the public display of the leader of the execution, the public execution of the leader of AI, the public execution of the false prophet and the beast as the lake of fire is opened and they are thrust 
into the pit in which they will burn forever. There's a grand story that God has dreamed and his wisdom and power have brought to pass. And we live in times like no other. This is the time to pray, saints. This is the time to get right with Jesus, to repent of anything that God has devoted to destruction. Anything that is devoted to destruction is another way of saying sin. Sin God has destined for the fire. And if we identify with it, God will treat us as if he's dealing with sin. That is why we must repent and get away from it and ask God to cleanse us with the blood of Jesus. And this isn't something you do once when you're five years old at a, at a Bible camp. This is something you do every day. Not because you don't have faith, but because you want to realize it in its fullness in your life. And you hunger for it, you thirst for it, and you are going for it from the heart level to have God live through you and have his way in your life. Through the Spirit of Jesus, revealed in the New Testament. And God promises anyone who will come, who will ask Him to forgive you, to cleanse you, to adopt you, to make you His, to give you a plan and a purpose, to give you an eternity with Him and with His saints. That invitation is open to anyone who wills. For God's plan will surely play out, and we will all play our parts in it. The only question remains, what part will we play? Will we agree with God? Will we enter into agreement with Him through prayer and enter into His purposes for our lives? Or will we be ground down in the wheel of wrath for God's judgment and justice are sure. They do not fail, but so is his mercy and his kindness and the way he has made for your soul. If you will but cry out to him right now in the name of Jesus, Ask him to forgive you of your sin. Cry out to him. There's no reason why I would have to lead you in a prayer. It is a prayer that comes very natural to our hearts when we truly cry out. It is, God, I am a sinner. God, forgive me for my sin. God, fill me with your spirit. I devote my life to you. Here I am. Save me, Jesus. Save me. And he will do just that. He will do just that. 
So I've probably drawn about 50 different parallels between Joshua 7 and 8, Revelation 13, 19, um, and I've probably already have gone too long on this. I'm not really sure how entirely to land the episode, but I will finish with this. Jesus is the greater Joshua. His name, Jesus, means Yeshua or Joshua. When God, when God named his son in the earth, he made reference, the reference point is to Joshua. He's saying, pay attention to Joshua. It is very important that you understand Joshua in relation to my son. So if we look at Joshua with that paradigm in mind, we start to see things, all sorts of new things that maybe we haven't seen before. And I'm just beginning to kind of dig into some of these parallels. But one parallel that we can see, and I think it's a strong one, and I think it is the strongest Old Testament this may be the strongest prefiguring of the battle of Armageddon when Jesus returns to the earth and the Antichrist comes out to meet him in battle and inspires all of the nations to come with to fight against this king on a horse. The, the greatest Old Testament prefiguring to that battle is the battle of Ai in Joshua 7 and 8. And I believe God would say, pay attention to Joshua. It has keys that will open up the book of Revelation and vice versa, so that you'll understand the paradigms in which I am working with in the end times. Because it's going to be very, very important for us to understand what's happening and why it's happening. Because if we're just thrown around by the events of what's going on, it's going to be very confusing and very hard to not be offended. But if we understand God's plan, trust Him in His plan, and join Him in it, God promises to set our feet upon a rock that will not move. God promises an outpouring of the Spirit that will guarantee his name is proclaimed gloriously to the very last minute of this age. Human beings can't guarantee that. God Almighty guarantees that. Not through human strength, but by his spirit. An outpouring, a historic outpouring of the spirit. So that's what we look forward to. That's what I'm talking about here on Babylon Singularity. And I hope you're enjoying what I'm doing here because really all I'm doing is opening my Bible and just flying off the cuff and hoping it turns out okay. So if, if you've got any feedback or, or anything uh, to, uh, to, let, to let me know, however, on my website, on Twitter, I appreciate my brothers and sisters out there listening. Um, God bless you, and uh, we'll see you next time on Babylon Singularity.
That concludes this episode of Babylon Singularity. I want to thank you for tuning in. If you're looking to hear more from me, you can find me on Twitter as well as my website, BabylonSingularity.com. I've also authored a book titled Babylon, available on Amazon. I look forward to hearing any thoughts or feedback, comments that you may have to help me make this show better. I do hope it's a blessing to you, and I hope that you'll tune in next time to Babylon Singularity.